Arguably one of the most important Israelis in history is a guy who you've probably never heard of. Now, this doesn't apply to me, but if you've eaten any fruits and vegetables lately, you just might have Simcha Blast to think. Most important, like my birthday buddy Chaim Weitzman from Season 2, Simcha Blast and I also share a birthday. He was born in Warsaw in 1897, on my birthday, and later moved to Palestine, determined to use his engineering expertise to support the Zionist cause of agricultural settlement. He was an expert in water engineering, and went around the country building various pipes, aqueducts, and companies to facilitate new settlements. Without him, the Negev Desert never would have been populated. But what makes him so important for everyone else is his invention of drip irrigation. He didn't invent the concept, but in the 1950s he and his son invented a device that made drip irrigation more efficient and easier to use. In the 1960s, he formed his own company called Netafim and partnered with Kibbutz Hatzerim and the Negev to pioneer the technology. It worked incredibly well. The Green Revolution of the mid-20th century was one of the great advances in human history, which saw a global rise in crop yields that fed hundreds of millions of people. Birthday buddy Simcha Blass's drip irrigation technology was essential to that progress. Netafim today operates water projects in 150 countries. All of which is to say that water is a major player in Israeli history. Ironic, as in so many other things for such a small country, Israel didn't have a lot, which forced it to innovate, and it spread these innovations to other countries facing similar water challenges. And the water that Israel did have was, of course, yet another source of conflict between it and its Arab neighbors. The water wars of the 1960s play a contributing role to the coming war in 1967, especially with Israel's main enemy in the north, Syria. So today's episode is all about water in Israel in the 1960s. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Okay, so I realize it's hard to visualize Israel's complicated borders and geography in a podcast, but water is actually pretty straightforward. So picture Israel's water sources as a straight vertical line running north to south. Got it? Okay. At the very top of the line are a bunch of small streams set amidst lush greenery. They gradually coalesce together to form a large river, the River Jordan, which begins to flow straight down our vertical line heading south. About a third of the way down the line, the Jordan runs into the Sea of Galilee, Israel's largest freshwater lake. Known as the Kinneret in Hebrew, the sea is around 700 feet below sea level. At the southern tip of the lake, the Jordan River picks up again, winding its way down our vertical line until it dumps into the Dead Sea. At 1,400 feet below sea level, the Dead Sea is the lowest spot on the planet. So it's pretty easy to understand. You can picture Israel's water sources as a straight line from the northern tip of the country down to the center of the country. The headwaters at the top, then the Jordan River, then the Sea of Galilee, then the Jordan River again, and then the Dead Sea. Now let's add one more visual. Everything to the left of that line, the west, is Israel. And everything to the right side of the line, the east, is either Lebanon, Syria, or Jordan. These water sources then divide hostile neighbors. So already you know there's gonna be trouble. And we're not talking a far distance here. The Jordan River isn't the Mississippi. For most of it, you can easily throw a baseball from one side to the other. 
or shoot a gun. So that's the first big problem. Israel's water sources are in territory that is either disputed or dangerous. The second problem is that these water sources are bunched up in the northern corner of the country. The farther south you go, the drier it gets until you reach the Negev Desert itself. But Israel was expanding, its population was growing, new settlements were rising, especially down in the Negev, which David Ben-Gurion was particularly devoted to developing. Israel needed water to grow. Since even before Israel was established, the Jewish agency, what we call the pre-state government, they were developing plans to expand water infrastructure, and several small canals, dams, and reservoirs had already been built. But now, beginning in the 1950s, it was clear that more water was needed. And for that, Israel would need to tap into the Jordan River. So in 1953, Israel started building a canal on the Jordan. This section of the river was fully within Israeli territory, but only by a couple hundred feet. Right there was Syria, and Syria declared that it would block Israel's efforts by force if necessary. And that's when the United States stepped forward with a bold idea. The United States had the idea that if Israel, Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan could share their water resources, all sides would reap big economic benefits. Hundreds of thousands of people would find work in new agricultural fields and construction, especially the destitute Palestinian refugees. With this cooperation would come reduced hostilities, and in finding themselves successful in cooperating over water, the Arabs and Israelis would realize they could cooperate on other things too. An integrated water plan for the Jordan River would be a huge boon for the Middle East. So President Eisenhower sent an envoy named Eric Johnston to make it happen. After a couple of years of negotiation, the Johnston plan was finalized. You know, I always feel bad for these diplomats who give their names to Middle Eastern peace plans that fail. Like, bummer, you thought you were going to win the Nobel Prize, but instead you just get made fun of on Jew Ought to Know. But anyway, the Johnston plan allocated the water. The most went to Jordan, the second most to Israel, and Syria and Lebanon divided the smallest chunk between them. It was a classic agreement. Everyone got a little something they wanted and had to compromise on stuff they didn't. In 1955, the Arab League, a joint group of the various Arab countries, refused to ratify the deal because they didn't recognize Israel as a legitimate country. But Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and Israel still agreed to abide by the percentage amounts and all the other technical stuff. But a year later, the plan collapsed even further. After Israel won the Suez War of 1956, the Arab League not only refused to ratify the agreement, but now opposed it outright. They were totally against anything that would bring Israel any economic or political benefit, even if it would help the Arab countries. Syria and Lebanon dropped out, but Jordan stayed in. The Jordanians and Israelis agreed to stick to the Johnston plan. The upshot of all this is that Israel needed to find a new location to build a canal. Luckily, it had one. So part of the problem is that the Jordan River and its headwaters flowed through all these countries, ensuring conflict. But the Sea of Galilee, the Kinneret, was fully in Israeli hands. Remember our vertical line, at the very top of the headwaters, then the Jordan River, then a third of the way down is the Sea of Galilee. 
Syria and Israel didn't have an official border. They just had a ceasefire line from Israel's War of Independence, which was made in 1949, where the two armies stopped fighting. That line ran as close as about 50 feet or so from the edge of the lake, but the lake was still technically within Israel. And because of that, Israel insisted that it didn't need permission from any of the Arab countries to draw water from the Kinneret. Every country, after all, gets to control the water resources inside its own territory, as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. As we'll see, harm anyone else is going to be the catch. But in the meantime, Israel began work on a giant canal to bring water from the Sea of Galilee down through the country all the way to the Negev Desert. It's called the National Water Carrier, and it was officially opened by Israel's newish Prime Minister, Levi Eshkol, in 1964. It was a feat of engineering, Israel's largest infrastructure project. Water from the Kinneret had to be brought up from 700 feet below sea level to 500 feet above, and then gradually sloped downwards all the way to the Negev. To get through valleys and hills, the canal had to be tunneled underground in various spots. Over two-thirds the length of the country, the National Water Carrier winds through the hills of northern Israel down towards the coastal plain, drops down past Netanya and Tel Aviv, and terminates at the edge of the Negev Desert. Just about anywhere you are in Israel, the local water system somehow connects to the main canal, and the impact of the 1960s was revolutionary for this small country. The National Water Carrier was the engine that turbocharged Israel's economic growth in the 1960s. With water from the Sea of Galilee now pouring into the Negev Desert, the possibilities seemed endless. Remember, Israel's vision was to turn the desert green and settle millions of Jews in the vast empty spaces of the Negev, which made up 60% of Israel's land. That vision was never quite realized, but still, dozens of new kibbutzim popped up in the desert. Tiny towns like Ashkelon, Beersheba, and Dimona began growing. Roads and highways were then built to connect all these places, which also proved crucial for national defense. Fruits and vegetables could be found growing alongside mineral mining operations, as it turned out that the Negev had a lot of natural resources that Israel could use. A couple hundred thousand Israelis were settled in the Negev, especially the Mizrahi, the Jews from the Middle East and North Africa, who were set up in the development towns that I've talked about before. Water from the Sea of Galilee made the Negev into an economic powerhouse for the little state that could. But back up north, the fight over water was just beginning, and it was about to get a lot more deadly. While Israel was building its national water carrier, Jordan was also building its own version of a national canal, and the two countries pretty well worked out their water allocations. But it was Syria and Lebanon that controlled parts of the headwaters of the Jordan River, all the way at the top of our vertical water line. They were determined to shut Israel down. As the national water carrier came online, the Arab League in 1964 issued a statement declaring Israel's use of water resources an intolerable threat. Access to water would allow for more Jewish immigration and economic growth. The Arabs intended to prevent such an outcome so that they would have time to develop the military resources to ensure the, quote, ultimate practical means for the final liquidation of Israel. So the Arab League decided to divert two of the main headwaters that fed the Jordan, one in Syria and the other in Lebanon. Dramatically less water would therefore reach the Jordan River, and therefore dump into the Sea of Galilee, and therefore be able to be used by Israel. 
We're talking around 30% less. Israel declared that a major violation. You can't divert water resources when it causes harm downstream. And the water Israel was drawing from the Sea of Galilee was not only theirs to use, but also didn't harm anyone else. Israel insisted that the Arabs were in a major violation of Israeli sovereignty and secretly moved military equipment close to the boundary lines. In late 1964, Syria and Lebanon rolled in with their tractors and bulldozers to begin work on diverting the headwaters. So Israel destroyed the bulldozers. The Syrians kept at it though, but next time they got smart. They sent their bulldozers far enough back from the border that Israel couldn't hit them without crossing the line. That is, without invading Syria. Yitzhak Rabin, one of our warrior gods, was now chief of staff of the Israel Defense Forces, the highest ranking army officer and therefore one of the most important people in the country. Yitzhak Rabin wanted to stop the Syrians without starting a war and gave the military the job of figuring out a way to destroy the bulldozers without actually invading Syria. So one of the motifs running through Israeli history is its ability and technological innovation given specific design constraints. You need land for agriculture, but it's a desert and there's not enough water. So you invent drip irrigation. Or you need to destroy a bulldozer in Syria without invading. So you invent, well, a better tank. In this case, the Israeli military retrofitted their tanks to hit targets far beyond what any tank previously could. The Syrians rolled their bulldozers a mile back from the border, thinking that no tank could strike from that far away. But Israel's new tanks, which were still sitting on its side of the border, did. So Syria came back with more bulldozers even further away. Israel hit those too. Eventually, Israel was hitting bulldozers two and a half miles away. It was pretty clear that the water diversion scheme was never going to work. All this fighting over the water resources was indicative of a bigger issue. The entire Israeli-Syrian border area had become a major conflict zone by the mid-1960s, and there were two problems here. Demilitarized zones and the mountains of the Golan Heights. Okay, so the demilitarized zones were small pockets of land in between the ceasefire lines from 1949, sometimes just a few hundred meters wide. Technically, they were mostly Israeli territory and were used for farming, but being so close to the Syrian lines made for extreme vulnerability. In November of 1964, at the same time that Israel and Syria were fighting over the water diversion, the Syrians attacked an Israeli patrol right along the ceasefire line, killing several soldiers. So Israel responded with tank fire. The Syrians responded to that with artillery strikes on several kibbutzim, so the Israelis sent in the air force. More soldiers were killed on both sides, and the Syrians realized that as long as the Israeli air force could bomb them, they would never be able to divert the headwaters of the Jordan River. But the Syrians still commanded the Golan Heights, and this gave them a huge advantage. The Golan Heights is a mountain range that towers straight above the Sea of Galilee and Israel's northern valley, which was filled with farms and kibbutzim and other settlements. From atop those mountains, the Syrians were able to attack Israel at will. They fired at Israeli fishing boats on the sea and on Israeli farmers trying to work the land. Eventually, Israel had to supply those farmers with armored tractors. But Israeli soldiers and civilians were regularly killed. 
Israel appealed to the United Nations for help, but the Soviets always blocked any efforts to stop Syria because they supported the Syrians. So the demilitarized zones basically became a fiction. Syria was able to attack Israel over the tops of the DMZs from the Golan Heights, and the Israeli military was then forced to enter the DMZs to retaliate or to use the air force. Here's the point of all this. All of this is just another piece of the puzzle snapping into place that is going to add up to war in 1967. Israel has problems on all of its frontiers, with Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and the Palestinians, all of which will contribute in their own way to the coming war, and we'll be getting to those over the next few episodes. But along the Syrian border, the big conflict was what we've been talking about. Access to water, the use of the Golan Heights as a platform to attack Israel, and dangerous instability along the ceasefire lines. What had always been a tense area was becoming quite hostile indeed. In the meantime, Israel was aggressively offering Simcha Blass's drip irrigation technology around the world, especially in Africa and Asia. Israel had the technical know-how, the human resources, and the experience in developing its own small country to be really useful to the world's developing nations. This was Foreign Minister Golda Meir's big pet project. Africans, she pointed out, had, like Israel and the Jews, suffered centuries of persecution and won their independence from the colonialists. Sharing Israel's know-how would not only benefit humanity, she argued, but it would bring Israel much-needed diplomatic friendships. Thousands of Israelis were sent abroad, and thousands of Africans brought to Israel to study, particularly the new agricultural techniques that Israel was utilizing, like drip irrigation and the kibbutz farming systems. Israel offered training programs especially for women, too. Israel became the go-to nation that developing countries could look to as a success story that they could replicate, with Israeli help. Just about every African president made a visit to Israel in the late 1950s and 1960s, and Golda Meir and Prime Minister Levi Eshkol visited them back. And it wasn't just water and irrigation projects. The historian Howard Sacher lists off the many areas in which Israel provided assistance or investment in Africa. Rural planning and development, the formation of pioneer and youth movements, medical, academic, and vocational education, and community development. Israeli medical teams were out in Burundi, Ghana, Rwanda, and Tanzania. Israelis were training rural social workers in Kenya. They built and staffed a hospital in Liberia and were treating eye diseases and building schools for the blind in those countries as well, a particularly unique contribution. In places like Ghana and Ethiopia, you'd find Israelis embedded in universities, hospitals, private industry, communications, and government agencies. And these African countries welcomed Israeli support. Unlike a lot of Western European countries, Israelis weren't bringing in racial and colonial baggage and had already proved itself in successfully settling, more or less, hundreds of thousands of immigrants from the Middle East and North Africa. There was also military assistance and know-how. African countries learned from Israel's Nahal unit, the system in which young Israelis received both military and agricultural training, establishing settlements that provided farming, employment, and security. A couple dozen African countries took this up, as well as Air Force schools, weapons training, and other paramilitary programs. Here's a fun fact. Before he became Uganda's dictator and famously helped the Palestinians hijack an Israeli airplane, Idi Amin trained as a paratrooper. 
If you check out pictures of him in uniform, you'll see Israeli paratrooper wings pinned to his chest. As Golda Meir acknowledged, all this wasn't done just out of the goodness of Israel's heart, but also for diplomatic purposes. Israel then, as now, was terrified of international isolation, and its deep investment in Africa paid off during the 1960s. The Arab countries were sometimes successful in rallying African countries to their side, and that became even more pronounced later in the 1970s. But for now, for the most part, Israel enjoyed decent relations with Africa's emerging nations, as well as countries in Latin America and Asia, like Ecuador or Costa Rica. Howard Sacker claims that in the 1960s, Israel had more of its citizens working abroad per capita than all of Europe combined. Israel prided itself on this kind of international goodwill, diplomacy, and partnerships, and maintains these efforts to this day. There was a great documentary. It was called Honorable Ambassador from 2012. I'm not sure where you can get it now, but it followed Israel's ambassador to Cameroon as he visited rural villages around that country. Even into the 21st century, Israel is still sending its diplomats to bring these places Simcha Blass's drip irrigation invention. So water was both the essential resource powering Israel's growth in the 1960s, as well as a growing source of conflict with its neighbors, especially Syria. As the northern boundary became ever more tense and violent, Israel turned to another vital resource they'd had. Spies. It was a high-stakes, high-reward business, and as we'll see, incredibly dangerous. That's next time. Today's music was folk music around water in the Kinneret, Ofrahaza, Netanella, and a couple versions of the famous Hebrew folk song called Maim Maim, which means water, water. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lehitraot. See you later. <laughs> Wish I had my best son, me my name, I assure.